Hello, and welcome to another episode of Tales from the Ruther Library, a podcast that is still being recorded elsewhere than at the Walter P. Ruther Library on the campus of Wayne State University in the most amazing city of all, Detroit, Michigan. I am Dan Galadner, along with the ever-stressed Troy Eller English. How you doing, Stressy? Oh, I'm just, I'm just swell, Dan. <laughs> you have, you have kid. Yeah. In virtual school. You yeah. have, you've had a major project that you just completed. Congratulations. Thank you. So you, you deserve, um, you deserve accolades as well as bourbon. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well that, that I've already, I've already <laughs> partaken there, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. Anyway, on to the show. So today's episode, we talked with labor historian Timothy Minchin, a professor at La Trobe University in Melbourne, Australia, who wrote a nice piece earlier this year in the journal Labor History called A Successful Union in the Era of Decline, Interrogating the Growth of the Service Employees International Union, 1980-1995. Now, if anybody knows anything about U.S. labor union history... The 1980s was not the best decade for American unions, starting with the air traffic controller strike when President Reagan fired 11,359 controllers. And then with that stroke of the pen, a signal went up to the employers and management that it was time to bury the unions, that employers could legally use scabs during strikes, and there was really nothing that could be done about it. So they did, and they used other techniques of harassment that decimated the union movement in America. And to make matters even worse, Reagan appointed the chair of the National Labor Relations Board, Donald Dotson, who believed that collective bargaining was the destruction of individual freedom. So everything that President Truman said back in 1940, which he said, that unions are woven into our economic pattern of American life and collective bargaining is part of the democratic process. Well, those days were now over. But there was a glimmer of hope. There was organizing that was going on from the public sectors, AFT and AFSCME, they were growing, as well as the SEIU. They both were, you know, SEIU is growing in public and private sector and in a variety of workplaces from healthcare to janitors. SEIU did increase their membership in the 1980s to the 90s, partly due to mergers, of course, but they organized like crazy. So, so there was a glimmer of hope within the union movement, and we're going to find out more about that with this episode. Now, we're going to find out how they did it, what was different about their organizing structure and their outreach to community. Now, there's another special addition to this uh, episode. We also have a co-interviewer. I dragged in the virtual studio, Sarah Lebowitz, our SEIU archivist, because she helped out mention so in so many ways. He's in Australia. We're in Detroit. She did tons of scanning for him. So I thought it'd be a great idea that they can sit down and talk and get to know each other a little more. So enjoy the episode, folks. Tim, thank you so much for being part of Tales of the Ruther. We really do appreciate you talking to us from around the world. Thank you, Dan. It's great to be here. I'm joining you today from Melbourne, Australia. Yep. And this, this is the amazing thing now about Zoom. Uh, we are cutting back on our long distance calls to be able to do this kind of stuff. So I'm so glad to be able to talk to you because the article you wrote on, on the SEIU is very fascinating. Um, we, we always hear about how, especially us in the labor world, how during the 80s, it was the death nail to labor. They were constantly losing membership. But then here's like uh, the public sector unions, AFT, AFSCME, and then, of course, the SEIU. 
And your paper is talking about this growth. Can you give us a rundown of why you think this happened for the SCIU? Was it, was it as you say, they were in the right place at the right time, you think? Yeah, well, I think it was um, several factors. Uh, I mean, I think the conventional understanding is that they were really good at organizing. Um, uh, I think that is partly true. They were good at organizing and they put a lot of resources into it. Uh, and they recognized the importance of organizing probably more before a lot of other unions did. Uh, but there were other factors. I think it was really important that they operated in a growing part of the economy. So the service sector obviously is a really growing part of the economy and it's, it's been the growing part of the economy for most of the post-World War II period. Uh, so they had advantages in a sense that other unions didn't have, um, particularly in manufacturing where membership was falling. Uh, so that was an important factor. They operated in a growing part of the economy. Um, also, as I explained in the article, they did pick up members through affiliations uh, of independent unions. So uh, a lot of states had um, government employee unions that were independent that affiliated with the SCIU um, in the 1980s in particular. Um, but at the same time, the SCIU was, was good at you know, getting those unions to affiliate with it and reaching out to them, um, which, in, which is part of organizing as well. Um, but the affiliations was a, another reason why they, why they grew as well. So operating within a growing part of the economy and, a, and affiliations um, were two important factors as well. Um, they had good leadership as well, which, you know, John Sweeney um, was an innovative president and was elected relatively young put a big commitment to organizing. And he formed this partnership with Andy Stern, who, who was the organizing director, and they really were an effective team in this period in concentrating on growth and organizing and um, being determined to you know, grow the union. So I think um, those factors were, were really important overall. Um, and yeah, finally, the the public sector bargaining rights, they operated in a period when public sector workers uh, were being given more bargaining rights. Um, this was particularly true in the 70s and 80s, um, and that helped as well. So those, those are, I think, were the main factors. So you, you touched briefly on Sweeney and you know the fact that he was elected in relatively young age. Um, he he also started working to bring in a younger staff, including people like Andy Stern. So could you talk a little more about what their game plan was, who they were? Yes. Yeah, so, um, I mean, uh, just to explain, I mean, I got interested in this topic really previously. I wrote a history of the AFL-CIO, um, which was published in 2017 called Labor Under Fire. And... Um, when I was researching that, of course, you, you know, I took the history of the AFL-CIO right through to, to the present. Um, and so John Sweeney figured quite prominently in that history. Um, and I interviewed him and I interviewed Andy Stern. And um, this is where I came across the importance of the SEIU in the story. Um, and, you know, the SEIU's story of success, they tried to carry it over to the AFL-CIO AFL itself because... John Sweeney was elected president in 1995, really on his record of success in, in the SEIU. Um, 
So I interviewed a lot of these SEIU leaders and staff um, previously uh, for that book. Um, and um, this is where I became aware of their game plan and their, their strategy, as you say. Um, I think, um, you, you know, go, coming out of this service employees union, I think they, they always had more of an understanding of, of organizing and the importance of growth. Um, and Sweeney was also um, good at, at diversifying his staff within, you know, compared to most um, labor leaders at the time, he, he had a good record of um, bringing women into the union, um, realizing women's potential more than was the norm at the time. Um, and um, as I say, he formed this effective partnership with, with Andy Stern. And they brought some other talented people into the union, um, like Karen Nussbaum, um, who came out of um, Nine to Five, and Anna Berger, and Denise Mitchell. Um, and I think one thing I noticed as well was he, he was willing to um, hire people from, out, from other backgrounds um, and was, was not so wedded to this traditional idea that you had to work your way up through the union, which could be a thinking that actually worked against women um, because it was harder for them to take these formal leadership positions or to, to secure those positions and work their way up. But Sweeney was more willing to hire from other backgrounds. But I think it was really um, characterized by an emphasis on growth. Um, and a concept that Andy Stern um, really sold to me or talk, explained to me is what he called building power. That's what they were trying to do, build power. Um, so it wasn't just about numbers and adding numbers. It was really about building power and trying to make workers more powerful, give them a voice. And one of those uh, examples of trying to give uh, uh, workers a voice was one of their first big organizing campaigns. Um, why don't you um, walk us through uh, the Beverly Nursing Home organizing campaign? That was a huge endeavor. Um, they took they they bit a lot to get there. Um, why was this a must-win situation for them? Yeah, Beverly Enterprises uh, was the country's biggest nursing home chain. So that it was an important target in that whole sector of nursing homes. Um, and um, it was a huge campaign. Uh, it was launched in 1982 and it wasn't actually settled until 2003. So the campaign sort of illustrates how hard organizing is in contemporary America, particularly in the private sector. Um, and they faced a lot of resistance. It was a you know, long drawn out sort of, you know, effort, battle with the company. Um, and as I say, it really illustrates how hard private sector organizing is. You've got to battle these big corporations um, that are very opposed to the union um, and um, really don't want to give the union a voice. And also they worked through the National Labor Relations Board, which was increasingly losing power in this period, was you know, not being funded as well, was being politicized um, by the Reagan presidency in particular. Um, so it was hard. It was really hard. Um, but they did, you know, hold their course and um, they did build up gains. They did organize homes one by one. Uh, they, they, they did make some gains. And then eventually in 2003, um, the company called a truce with Andy Stern, who was the president of the SEIU by that point. And, um, 
uh, it, you know, they granted the union recognition in 2003. Um, so their persistence paid off. Um, but I think what I, one of the things I learned from that campaign um, was that the image that the SEIU just sort of grew um, easily or, or, you know, it, it wasn't that, wasn't that simple. It, it took a lot of effort, particularly right. in the right. private sector. It's so hard in the private sector. Um, and it was this big, drawn-out battle. Um, and, um, yeah, they, you know, they put a lot of, a lot of effort to get that eventual agreement. So another campaign that was similar that you also touch on is the uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield. And I think Dan has strong feelings on the AFL-CIO report, Evolution of Work. Um, so there was this push from AFL-CIO and also from other affiliated unions working together. So what happened with this, with the whole Blue Cross Blue Shield effort? What were the lessons learned, kind of? Yeah. Um, well, it's, it was a campaign that the, it was a multi-union campaign. So there were quite a few unions involved in it. Um, and um, the SEIU was just one of them. And as, as you say, it, it came out of the evolution of work um, effort, which was a committee that the AFL-CIO set up in the 1980s to look at why their membership was declining and what they could do about it. Um, and the report's actually really interesting. Um, they did recognize a lot of the trends that were going on and they were quite willing to look at their own flaws as well um, and to discuss it. Um, so it sort of partly contradicts the idea that Labour was sort of not doing enough to address decline um, and was content to sit back uh, you know, and not, and was too sort of, yeah, uh, complacent about the situation. Um, but of course, it was one thing to identify the problem, it was another to change it or tackle it. It was very hard. And they were in a hostile climate. Um, and it, it was, you know, an era of conservative political control under Reagan, and a lot of unions were on the defensive. Um, and, um, you know, one thing I, I learned from interviewing particularly leaders of manufacturing unions was that they they said well we really wanted to do more organizing but all the time plants were closing if you were in the auto industry or the steel industry um or textiles the whole whole range of sectors i mean they were just constantly receiving news that this plant's gone down and as we can as we see from what's going on now when people lose their jobs it's devastating um, it's a social crisis, uh, you know, people need all sorts of things, you know, food and medical insurance and housing and they have mental health problems and physical health problems and all of these things. And they often turn to their unions that, and the unions did a huge amount of work, which I think is quite not unrecognized in helping displaced members. Um, and actually in financial terms, didn't really get any credit for it because these, they, these unions were, going out of business because um, the companies were closing. They were losing the members. They were losing the Jews. Um, so, uh, yeah, that was really hard for these manufacturing unions to organize. Um, but in terms of Blue Cross Blue Shield, um, as I say, it was a multi-union drive. Um, it was very important because Blue Cross Blue Shield was America's largest health insurer. Um, 
the SEIU was only part of it, and they organized in Ohio, yeah, Cleveland and Toledo, where they organized. Um, the campaign faced a lot of corporate resistance again, it, like some similarities with um, the um, Beverly nursing homes, that there was a lot of corporate resistance and also highlighted a, a lot of the barriers of trying to organize um, sort of insecure workers in the service sector. It was hard to contact them. Um, a lot of them were working shifts. They, they were not at home easily. It was hard to find them. And, of course, this is in an era before cell phones and so on. You, you, they had to actually do HVs, as they called it in the notes, house visits. And I spent a lot of time, when you look at the reports, say, trying to find these people, and they weren't at home because they're working so much and they're working shifts. And a lot of them are working two and three jobs at the same time, so they're barely home. Um, so the, the papers really gave me an insight into the, how hard this organizing was on the ground. Um, and um, it was a campaign that, that struggled to um, you know, achieve uh, what they wanted in terms of you know, the widespread recognition. Um, they did get a neutrality agreement in Ohio, but the, the company then really um, undermined it uh, and um, also gave some concessions to in order to keep the union weakened. Um, so it was quite a, a difficult campaign for the SEIU overall. Um, but I think they learned lessons from it that they applied injustice for janitors, which was a you know, a more pro high-profile and successful campaign, um, particularly about going outside the National Labor Relations Board process in order to get leverage um, on employers using civil disobedience and public support to apply pressure. Um, but, well, I think that was something they learned from both um, Beverly Nursing Homes and Blue Cross Blue Shield. Yeah, because both of those two organizing campaigns were restricted within LRB and also with private. And the companies did their usual tactics, uh, especially with Blue Cross Blue Shield. They, they uh, um, gave concessions, allowed them to make phone calls when they had to work late, yeah. use personal phone calls and stuff like that. But also uh, they did the classic tactic of an anti-union group um, that was saying, you know, we, we have to be union free. Um, and... Yeah. You know, that, that's just the undermining tactics, but not with Justin Virginia's. That was, this is the beginning of um, what you can call social organizing. You know, uh, he, hotel workers and SEO are credited for the social movement type organizing. And Justice for Janners is it. Um, it is the most celebrated of SEIU's actions um, before uh, um, 15. Yeah. So why don't you why don't you like give us you know how do they become this community organizing from doing a large corporate organizing to, to this community type of organizing that they 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 were successful at? Well, again, I think it took time. Again, Justice for Janitors was a um, long campaign. It was launched in 1986 and it ran until the early 2000s. It sort of reached a peak um, in the early 1990s or early to mid 1990s. Um, but again, they, they, they invested time in this. I, I think, um, you know, some unions thought that organizing well would be short and, um, you know, they, they had a campaign and they wouldn't always stay with it maybe, but, um, the SEIU would, was willing to put the investment in and, and, um, 
they built up this community angle gradually um, and um, they reached out to community organizations, um, to churches, uh, to civil rights organizations, um, to progressive organizations, to the National Organization of Women, um, and they built up these important links um, because they realized that to get leverage um, on the employers, they, it, they needed to use other tactics apart from just the NLRB. So they, they needed to get public support and they needed to um, get, use civil disobedience as well. Um, and many of the tactics were successful because they targeted not the cleaning companies themselves, um, who were often opposed to the union, but the the employers' bosses, who were the commercial landlords, um, who were more sensitive to criticism. Um, so, again, they really thought about where the power was and where they could, you know, target their resources most effectively. So it was a quite well thought out um, campaign. And I think when I look at it, what really I think works in the Justice for Janitors campaign was that they dramatized the issue of the working poor, which a lot of people understood. Um, so they made it broader than just these janitors. It was the whole issue of the working poor in the economy, people losing security of work, um, having to deal with increasing insecurity, deal with having two or three jobs, pay going down, losing benefits, losing health care. Millions of Americans uh, and people around the world can relate to that. It's not just about janitors. Um, most people were experiencing those trends in one way or another. Um, you know, the whole notion of secure work was disappearing. There was increased precarity uh, across the economy. And um, I think that was where the Justice for Janitors campaign was really innovative and clever, was in bringing out this angle of the working poor um and and selling it effectively and um a lot as i say a lot of people understood that they were also very successful in in realizing i think the the, the massive potential of the latino community as a group to reach out to um and um you know latinos have become increasingly important in the labor movement over the last 20 or 30 years and the seiu really i think was a pioneer in that um, whole development. Um, and they were also very good at, at realizing women's potential and women's need for unions as well. And of course, a, lot, a large number of these janitors were women. Um, and again, they, were, they, they recognized their, their need for union representation. Um, and that was another factor that it helps explain the SEIU's growth is that um, these workers were were really in need of a of a better deal, um, and in some ways they didn't have a lot to lose because they were already insecure, they were already poorly paid, um, and um, you know the SEIU kind of turned that vulnerability around and said, "Well, we 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 can give these people a voice, and rather than seeing them as vulnerable and hard to organise, we they're actually." Um, it actually is an advantage in many ways. So they thought really positive about it. So I think it was all of, all of those factors came together to explain um, the success of the um, Justice for Janitors campaign. Um, and um, it acted as a, 
predecessor for Fight for 15. Um, and by, by, as I say, by raising this issue of the working poor um, and the need for higher wages across the economy, particularly in the service sector. So this was taken up by the, 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 the Fight for 15 um, campaign later on, which the SEIU also played a big uh, role in. I like also how um, it, it was an opportunity to, to bring out the people that have been coming to this country, legal or illegally, for a long time with the wars in Central America and South America that were perpetuated by the Reagan administration. And here they are working as invisible workers, so to speak. Everybody leaves the offices and then they come in and miraculously everything is clean. You know? Yeah. Um, it exposed this, this underbelly, I guess you can say, of working class that America wanted to ignore in the late 80s. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think they, they gave visibility to people that weren't visible, as you say. And um, they were this sort of silent army that, as you say, like people would work in offices and go home and, um, and come back the next day and everything was clean and um, not really think about how that happened. Um, but there was this whole group of workers going in at night and being paid very poor money to, to do a difficult job in in unsociable hours, um, and the SEIU gave visibility to that group. So it was a very important um, uh, effort, I think, overall. Um, so, you know, this is a, a theme that you've kind of, you touched on it earlier in terms of Sweeney bringing women more into organizing, more to the forefront. You also touch on it with uh, the Justice for Janitor campaign and how Basically, it was, it was partly a, a woman's empowerment movement. Um, could you explain a little more how this was developed, uh, especially in, in light of kind of invisible workers and marginal work? Well, obviously, I'm a, you know, I'm a male historian and I don't feel like I'm the best place to comment on this in some ways. It's not, yeah, but uh, <laughs> I, I do my best from what I've observed and try and understand it. You know, I recognize my privilege. Uh, as a, as, a, as a white man writing about this. Um, but um, I think Sweeney, uh, you know, he grew, he grew up in, in a working class New York background. Um, his parents were, were service workers themselves. Uh, I think his uh, mother was a janitor and his, his um, father was a bus driver from, from mm -hmm. memory. Um, so he, he, he had some understanding of the, the, these kind of lives that immigrants had uh, in the service sector. And of course, in his era, it was more like European immigrants. He was from an Irish background himself. Um, but by the 1980s, it's in, these increasingly Latinos um, and African-Americans that are, that are in these jobs. Um, and so I think Sweeney had an understanding of it from, me, from his background. Um, and um, one of his staff has said that he grew up in an immigrant family with strong female role models. Um, that was Denise Mitchell that said that, who, who worked in the, as one of his staffers um, and called him a natural champion to, of women. So although he was a male leader, I think he was unusual in his time in, in, in um, being willing to give a, a strong voice to women and um, being open to new ideas. And the SEIU, um, also, you know, was pretty good at bringing women into leadership positions within the union, um, although it wasn't 
perfect because despite the fact that their membership was, you know, had a lot of women in it, um, the, the presidency remained male um, until Mary Kay Henry became president, which I think was around 2010. Um, but, but Sweeney, um, you know, he he, um, he he was someone that had an understanding of women's potential, I think, and um, he, he certainly, you know, hired some very talented women, people that I interviewed, that were impressive people like Anna Berger and Denise Mitchell and Karen Nussbaum, um, that were energetic, intelligent, you know, committed uh, and very able staffers that really helped to explain the success of the union in this period overall. Okay, I have to ask this question um, based on the fact that I, I, I deal with the American Federation of Teachers Archives. We have an archivist who deals with AFSCME's archives and of course Sarah deals with SEIU. All three yeah. of these unions showed growth in the 80s, 90s, they're still showing growth. I think uh, yeah. every once in a while there's a little teeny dip, something went wrong, but they, they're they the ones that are growing. But mostly we we see the labor movement uh, in the 80s and 90s has just declined, but no one's ever really talking about this massive amount of growth that was going on. Can you explain why no one's really writing about it? And you, you are here telling us about it, you know? Well, it's a very good question, Dan. I, um, I think the the decline narrative has been so dominant. And I think the, the media has played a big role in that. Um, the, the media, you know, constantly go on about decline, the decline of labor and they've shaped the narrative, I think in many ways. Um, I know that, uh, you know, some of Lane Kirkland's former staffers um, told me that he used to just get really tired of you know, having press conferences and the media going on about decline. Um, and asking him, you know, why is it happening? What are you doing about it? Um, and he used to call it the wither labor question. Um, you know, so I think, I think the media has shaped that narrative and, um, it's also reflected scholarship. Uh, and, um, there's a whole genre of scholarship looking at decline and why it's happened. And, um, I think that's important and I've contributed to that myself as well. Um, but the, the, the unions that have grown have, have been, you know, more overlooked, I would say. Um, I, think, I think scholars generally have been more drawn to manufacturing unions. Um, that's part of the answer as well, that, uh, that those unions that uh, are more traditionally seen as um, union industries. Um, and there's also, I think... Um, by historians, I mean my my disciplinary background is in history, and I think that there's a um, reluctance to some extent to write about the more recent period. Um, it's sometimes harder to get archival material, uh, although in this case that wasn't true. That the archives are available and they're they're really excellent, and um, Sarah really helped me in getting the material. Um, so I think that's a, th those are the factors, um, but I think. I think the decline narrative overall has really been um, dominant. Um, but this this growth, um, it was a nice article to write, actually, because it, it was nice to write something positive about growth and um, a more uplifting story overall. Yeah, I, I guess I guess the media looks for negative things <laughs> to some extent. Well, um, the old adage goes, yeah. it's, if it bleeds, yeah. it leads, right? 
Yeah, yeah, and you know, you know, good news is not news in a sense. So um, I think maybe it's partly that you know that people having crises and problems. You know, the problems that unions have, whether it's you know political battles or corruption scandals or you know financial misdoing, when these things happen, um, they get plenty of publicity, and that's what draws readers, I guess, of newspapers and the media and the, so on. But the success, growth, is is not as... The media are not as drawn to it. And I suppose to some extent it reflects a, a sort of conservatism, anti-union um, thinking that, you know, they only want to highlight problems that unions have, um, not, not good things that they do, um, and not positive stories. Given that we're operating in an era... You know when union you know have lost influence in the national story overall, um, and, um, and and there's been a rise the rise of conservatism. Um, so though you know the right has been able to shape the story, I think that's also part of what's what's going on. Um, I mean, again, writing the history of the AFL-CIO, I really saw how the media's coverage of the labour movement changed over time. Um, and in the 1950s, you know, like the New York Times and the Washington Post had stories about unions all the time. You do searches in the newspapers and you get hundreds of articles. And they had dedicated labor reporters like A.H. Raskin. Um, and as time went on, you could see it getting less and less. And, you know, taking it through to the current day. And um, there's, you see very few stories about unions. Um, and, yeah, I think uh, the last uh, labor writer, newspaper writer, uh, Stephen uh, Greenhouse, finally left the New York Times. Uh, yeah, that was the last. He was the yeah. last one, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So Stephen Greenhouse was was the last sort of labor correspondent, and even I noticed his stories were getting less frequent, and um, you know, were kind of being folded into a broader portfolio about economics and sort of thing. Um, so the visibility of labor really. Uh, declined over time, but it didn't mean that unions were not still important. Um, you know, I remember interviewing Richard Trumker and he he said to me, you know, we've still got 13 million members. What other organization in the US has that? Um, that's still quite a voice. Um, but decline is how it's been framed. It's the dominant story. So I... You've had a unique experience that I think many other researchers will now be having, um, and that is that all of the material you viewed remotely. So could you talk to us a little bit about what that was like? Do you have any tips for researchers who will now likely be receiving material in the same way? And then um, just remind us what SEIU collections you requested. Yeah, for this article, I it, it was last year, and I... I, I um, wasn't in a position to be able to come physically, and it's a big trip from Australia. Um, so I was able to order the material remotely, and you were enormous help, Sarah, um, in, in doing that. And um, I guess it, it helped that I had been to the Ruther Library before. I, I came in 2016 and 2017 um, collecting material on the, on the UAW. Um, and so that that had that had helped, um, you know. I, I I kind of I had some familiarity with the collections, um, but I think tips. I mean, tips. I think it's like reaching out to to the archivists and um, 
I think also trying to get the, you know, if you've got a detailed finding aid, that's really beneficial. Um, and, and for the SEIU uh, papers, the, the finding aids were really good and detailed. So that helped um, because, you know, you can't order whole boxes um, or, you know, you're going to spend a lot of money and um, end up with a lot of material that is not really going to be helpful. So I think you have to be targeted um, and try and narrow it down to particular folders um, and make it as specific as possible. And that's where a detailed finding aid is really helpful. I mean, I found that there's, there's extra challenges being in Australia with the, with the time difference um, because your working day corresponds almost exactly with our night time and vice versa. Uh, so you can't communicate directly very easily. Um, but I tried to turn that into an advantage in that, um, you know, you would send the material while I was asleep. And then when I woke up, I'd have this sort of present to <laughs> go through. Um, and it was quite nice. I think, well, what, you know, I woke up, I, oh, there's another batch and I can look at it and um, <clears throat> look at my sort of catch of the day, um, which has come in while I've been asleep. So it was quite nice. Um, but I think being targeted is, is really important and um, communicating with the archivists um, and um, trying to be as specific as you can in your, in your orders. But as you say, I had no idea that, that, you know, that what would happen obviously with the coronavirus, but I, I guess, you know, obviously you're right that this, this, this way of working remotely is um, gonna be much more common uh, both now and in the near future. Okay, Tim. Uh, I really, really, really do appreciate the, the time you've taken to explain your article that you had out, um, and you cleared up a lot of questions for us. Thank you so much for participating in Tales of the Ruther. From the Ruther Library is a production of the Walter P. Ruther Library of Labor and Urban Affairs at Wayne State University, coming to you from the heart of the Cultural Center of Detroit, Michigan. The producers of Tales from the Ruther Library are Dan Glogner and Troy Eller English. Special assistance from the Ruther Podcast Collective, including Bart Bilmer, Elizabeth Clemens, Megan Courtney, and Paul Neering. Of course, this podcast could not be done without the research and the support of the entire Ruther Library staff. To learn more about the Ruther Library, or if you have any questions, please visit our website at www.ruther.wayne.edu. Thanks for listening. Say goodbye, Dan. Goodbye, Dan. All right, so I'll do that first sentence, okay? Mm-hmm. With the new info, Milburn. Okay. Where is it? It's at the top. Thank you. <laughs> Very kind of you. You're welcome. <laughs> Melbourne. You see the Pretty pictures of. Sure, you would be made fi- made fun of for pronouncing it like that. <laughs> Melbourne. <laughs> I think you need the mental health day. Yeah. Please take it. Why not? Yeah. Take something. Yeah. Take shots. Yeah.